Lead to Win is brought to you by Leaderbox, a monthly reading experience curated by leaders for leaders. Learn more at leaderbox.com. In 2013, the Romanian hacker Marcel Lazar cracked open email accounts belonging to the members of George W. Bush's family. And inside, Lazar found paintings by the former president of animals, especially dogs, still life, a golf course, even some very curious self-portraits. Until Lazar released the images to the media, no one knew about Bush's hobby. But Bush wasn't alone in his pastime. Presidents Jimmy Carter, Ulysses S. Grant, and Dwight Eisenhower all painted. Though Eisenhower's doctor suggested the hobby to relieve stress, his real inspiration was another avid amateur, Winston Churchill. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the- Churchill's great strength, according to the historian Paul Johnson, was his power of relaxation, and painting was a big part of that power. He took up the hobby during a bleak time in his career and kept at it the rest of his life, even through the worst of the Second World War. As Johnson concludes, the balance he maintained between flat-out work and creative and restorative leisure is worth study by anyone holding a top position. Well, that's sound advice. But let's be honest, most of us aren't listening. According to Gallup, the average American work week is closer to 50 hours and 40, and one in five works 60 hours or more. Now, you might be tempted to think it's blue-collar workers who clock the longest shifts, but no. It's professionals who rack up the most hours. In fact, a study by the Center for Creative Leadership found professionals and business leaders who carry smartphones tend to work more than 70 hours a week. But it gets worse. Alexandra Michelle of the University of Pennsylvania has tracked investment bankers working 100 hours or more a week. But factoring long commutes family commitments, and other demands, and even marginally overstuffed schedules cause us to steal time from the margins. Working on nights and weekends? Check. Leaving vacation days unused? Check. Going to bed late and rising early? Check. Two-thirds of leaders surveyed by Nick Van Dam and Els Vanderhelm for McKenzie & Company admitted being generally dissatisfied with how much sleep they get. And quantity isn't the only issue. More than half were also dissatisfied with the quality. Meanwhile, ransacking the margin pantry for more spare hours is celebrated. Elon Musk famously said entrepreneurs should work 80 to 100 hours a week if they want to be effective. His superpower, said one journalist, has always been sleep, or really the ability to go without it. It's like the guy's always on. According to his biographer, he actually used to sleep in a beanbag next to his desk. And in a 2016 call with analysts, Musk said he keeps a sleeping bag in a conference room next to the Tesla production line. In offices all over, bragging rights go to those who work the most and sleep the least. And that's especially true of America, where we work longer hours than practically anyone else in the world. The pressure to overwork is so great that some even lie about working more than they do, like someone inflating their golf game. We're living in what German philosopher Joseph Piper called total work, where labor drives life, not the other way around. And the results? They're honestly depressing. More than half of employees say they're fried, 
40% work weekends at least once a month, a quarter keep plugging away after hours, and half say they can't even leave their desks for a break, according to a joint survey by Staples Advantage and Future Workplace. And when Kronos Incorporated and Future Workplace checked with more than 600 human resources leaders, 95% said that burnout is undermining their employee retention efforts. They identified low pay, long hours, and heavy workloads as the three biggest contributors to burnout. So let's just stop and ask, why on earth are we doing this to ourselves? Hi, I'm Michael Hyatt, and this is Lead to Win, my weekly podcast designed to help you win at work, succeed at life, and lead with confidence. And today we're going to tackle the burnout culture. And I'm here with my co-host, COO of Michael Hyatt and Company, and my eldest daughter, Megan Hyatt Miller. Thanks for joining me, Megan. Hey, Dad. It's great to be here with you today. Yeah, I'm excited about this topic. This is something that's really prevalent, something we've discussed a lot, and something that we need to address head on. Absolutely. As you mentioned, today we're talking about burnout, the cost, the cause, and the cure. And you know, Dad, I really liked that you mentioned counterbalance mm-hmm. at the beginning because that's what this is really all about, the necessary ebb and flow of work and rest. It's a balancing act, and there's definitely a tension there. Definitely. But we pay a price when we lean too far in one direction or the other. And as you pointed out, this is really a cultural issue. I mean, it is everywhere. Yep. So first, let's talk about the cost. Okay, so I'd like to start with a story that um, happened to me about 15 years ago. And I was under a lot of stress at work. I was trying to turn around a failing division in our company. Mm -hmm. And I had inherited this division that was in pretty bad shape. And so I was working nights, weekends. In fact, my entire team was doing it. And then I found that I ended up in the emergency room three times in a row thinking that I was having a heart attack. Yikes. Yeah. But thankfully, I wasn't. It was just stress. But finally, to get to the bottom of it, I went to a cardiologist and I said, what's happening to me? So he put me through all the stress tests, you know, wired me up, did all that kind of stuff. And he said, look, your heart's fine. That's not the issue. Your issue is stress, but, and this was the big but, if you don't do something about the way you're living and about the pace that you're living, this could be for real. And next time you see me, it could be a real heart attack. So that was kind of a wake-up call. I felt like then I had to kind of dial it back and take a look at this whole thing about pace and about how many hours I was working and the amount of rest I was getting, or in that case, not getting. So did you think that what you had experienced was abnormal or... Was that common among your peers at that time? Well, I, I mean, I didn't really know. I assumed it was kind of abnormal. In fact, I was embarrassed by it. Hmm. I remember one night, first time it happened, I was in New York City with a friend of mine. We were having dinner at a lovely restaurant. And all of a sudden, everything kind of started swirling around me. I got kind of dizzy. I felt like I was almost about to lose consciousness. And my friend was telling this long, involved story. And I finally just stopped him. And I said, I said, David, I think I'm having a heart attack. And he looked at me, his eyes about popped out, and he raised his hand and he said, check. <laughs> and immediately we ran outside. I mean, I kind of ran, but we got in a cab and went to uh, a hospital in Midtown, New York. And um, as it turned out, it wasn't a heart attack at all. They couldn't find a single thing, but I was so embarrassed to have that happen, you know, in the middle of this lovely dinner. Right. Well, the crazy thing about that is, even though I thought that was abnormal at the time, what I've since discovered as I've spoken to a lot of CEOs and business leaders is that it's, 
I don't know how prevalent it is, but it's fairly common. Hmm. When I tell that story, a lot of people come up to me and say, oh my gosh, that happened to me too. So it's more common than you would think. Wow. So that's kind of a funny story to tell after the fact, but it certainly was not funny then. And that just leads into the fact that there are numerous consequences to this burnout culture. There are four, in fact, that we want to discuss today. Yeah, absolutely. And so let's start with this first one. Consequence number one, your effectiveness. You know, the research shows that we actually produce less for the extra hours we work. And at a certain point, we're just chasing our tails. Jack Nevison, founder of New Leaf Project Management, crunched the numbers from several different studies on long work hours. Get this, Meg. He found there's a ceiling. Push past 50 hours a week, and there's no productivity gain for the extra time. Oh my gosh. That's like the joke's on you. Uh, Exactly. In fact, it can go backwards. One of the studies he examined found that 50 hours on the job only produced about 37 hours of useful work. But at 55 hours, it dropped to almost 30. What? Yeah. Nevison calls this the rule of 50. Wow. So that leads right into consequence number two, as you alluded to earlier with your story, which is your health. Our minds and bodies are just not designed to work around the clock. No, they're not. And when we try, it's no surprise that it wrecks our health. Yep. Because of those hours that we work, most of us don't get the sleep we need. And to save time... In the kitchen, we eat for convenience, not nutrition or even joy. I mean, you're just, you're just like grabbing food yep. on the go. Refueling. That's it. Exactly. We don't get enough exercise or rest and relaxation. And it often looks like just collapsing exhausted in front of the television or mindlessly clicking away online. Well, I mean, that's true for me. When I've had sure. a day that's really long like that and I put in too many hours, you know, I'm just basically a zombie. Yeah. Right? So plop yourself down in front of the TV and numb out. Absolutely. The result, apparently, according to the World Economic Forum's Human Capital Report, says that Americans are unhealthy, stressed, and depressed compared to other countries, despite our relative wealth. That was definitely true for one of our clients, Colleen Hammond. My name is Colleen Hammond. I'm the founder of the Total Image Institute and creator of the Style Academy. I have a huge need to be productive, not only for my children, uh, for my health, for my marriage, and for my business. My business had exploded, and I was dealing with balancing my family, balancing my business. Uh, It got so big so fast that I couldn't keep up. I was very overwhelmed. If anybody had ever come into my home and talked to my family, they would know that my family didn't see me. I was working probably 80 hours a week, 60, 70 hours a week. It's the old adage, an an entrepreneur will work 80 hours a week for themselves so they don't have to work 40 hours a week for somebody else. I took that literally. And it finally got to the point where on a Sunday, because for me, Sunday is sacrosanct. This is family time. And it hit me one day on a Sunday when one of my children didn't call me a hypocrite, but basically said, I thought you said Sunday was family time. And I realized that I had put my business ahead of my family. A few months ago, I actually was diagnosed with breast cancer, and that added another level of stress because of not only just the health issue, but how I chose to deal with it, that I ended up actually having a heart attack a month later. Uh, and I was in the hospital for that. So 
combining the business with the family, with my health, I had to figure out how to be productive. Lack of sleep is a major contributor to this problem. Depending on how you look at the numbers, the national average is pretty close to six hours a night. Now, according to a study conducted by David Dinges, head of the sleep lab at the hospital at the University of Pennsylvania, test subjects go in on six hours of sleep a night, and by the way, this blows my mind, for two weeks, functioned at the same level of impairment as someone legally drunk. Oh my gosh, that is terrifying. It is. Wow. It's a vicious cycle. Excessive hours rob us of sleep and self-care. But according to neuroscientist Penelope Lewis, our lack of sleep dings our effectiveness, further extending our work hours. As Lewis says, sleep-deprived people come up with fewer original ideas and also tend to stick with old strategies that may not continue to be effective. We totally know this is true in our own experience of life, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, anybody that's a parent of small children you know, I'm raising my hand right now. You can't see me, exactly. I'm raising my hand. So people that are in your shoes or people that were in a situation like we were with five daughters under the age of 10, you know, it's like chronically sleep deprived and you do feel drunk all the time. No wonder. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't quite go that far all the time, but I, I get what, what you're saying there. You know, the other thing is, is that very often we see this happen when we try to work late in the night. Yeah. Uh, my mom will often say to you, just go to bed and try to wake up in the morning and get done in half the time what you're trying to do right now. And that proves to be true every single time. And absolutely. She's always right. Yep. Okay. So that rolls into consequence number three, your relationships. And this is really where, you know, you have to pay the piper and there's a real serious consequence. According to business researchers, Nick Van Dam and Els Vanderhelm, I quoted them earlier, in a sleep deprived state, your brain is more likely to misinterpret emotional cues and to overreact to emotional events, and you tend to express your feelings in a more negative manner and a tone of voice, which is a nice way of saying that when you're tired, you kind of lose it, and it has a relational impact, right? Yep, absolutely. In addition, researchers from the University of California, Berkeley, found that we're more likely to lash out at those perceived slights when our energy is drained. Wow. I know this is true for me. How often do you end up in a fight with your spouse or an argument with your kids or something when you're tired? No kidding. And it's I mean, almost next, like always a common denominator. And the next morning you think, why do we go through all that? Right, exactly. Another study from the Walter Reed Army Institute confirms and extended these findings. They discovered that sleep deprivation leads to a drop in emotional intelligence, stress management skills, and behavioral coping skills. This is not a good recipe. In other words, it sets us up for relational sabotage. Yep. Aside from the havoc wrecked on our emotional states, overwork also has a practical consequence for our loved ones, right? When we engage in overwork, we're asking our spouses and children to carry the weight of our ambition. Ugh, that just makes me feel sad to say that. Yeah, that whole weight metaphor is is really interesting because Andy Stanley uses the metaphor of a rock to make this mm-hmm. point. He says it's like we've got some big rock and we ask a loved one to hold it for us while we go off and work some more. And for a while, it's okay. I mean, they want to be helpful. You know, they want to they want to help out. But after a while, the weight of that rock gets to be too much and they drop it and it has serious consequences. I remember the first time I heard that story, I cried because I Aww. thought about times that I had been in that situation and times I had put other people in that situation and how unfair it is and worse, how unconscious it is. Yeah, I've done it a lot too. And I've asked your mother to hold the rock 
way too many times. Well, I think that's why the self-awareness thing about this is so helpful because once you sort of wake up and you realize that's what you're doing, you can make a better choice. But man, it's sobering when you realize it for yeah, sure. Yeah, it really is. So the fourth consequence is your legacy. The Journal of Psychology surveyed hundreds of professionals to find out the effects of sustained work obsession. The results were clear. Overworked employees reported emotional exhaustion, physical illness, and lower investment in their jobs. That was after only one year of chronic overworking. Wow. Can you imagine the results of sustaining overwork for a decade or more? Well, it kind of goes back to the whole zombie comment. Right. You know, I mean, the walking dead, right? Well, as your health, your relationships, and your effectiveness all crumble, so does your legacy. Our addiction to work is literally killing us. Get this, one Harvard Business School study suggests that overworking might be a factor in 120,000 deaths a year. In fact, in Japan, this is such a big problem, they actually have a word for it, kuroshi. It means death by overworking. So now that we've explored the dangers of burnout culture, let's explore the cause. All right. So in light of the devastating costs of burnout culture, we have to wonder what's behind this. How did this burnout culture start and what forces keep it going? I mean, it's easy to assume that society or business leaders are to blame, but more of the fault, I think, rests on us than we probably care to acknowledge. Yeah, I I hate to say that that's true, but I think it is. There are three main reasons why we stay stuck in burnout culture. Reason number one, it's ingrained in our culture. There's a fascinating story in 1843, the Culture and Lifestyle magazine published by The Economist, that explores how overwork came to be the cultural norm. It travels down through history from the 1930s when they imagined that employees in 100 years would only be working 10 or 15 hours a week. (laughs) As if. (laughs) As if. To today, with longer hours and unprecedented work stress. The article offers many reasons, including, first, work has become more interesting and more employees find their identity in their careers. Yeah, and I've seen that in the work world where somebody retires, and this literally happened in a job I was in, where the person retired, and the day after they retired, they said, well, if I'm not the divisional manager, who am I? I mean, their identity was so wrapped up in their job that they didn't have an existence hardly apart from that job. Wow. That is really sad. The second reason is that social engagement outside of work has decreased substantially. Yeah, duh. I mean, if you're working all the time, you have no social life, right? Right. So these things feed on one another. No social life, you work too much, you work too much, you have no social life. Right. Vicious cycle. Vicious cycle. Technology has also made our culture more frenzied than ever, they said. And what's crazy about that is that, you know, the promise of technology was that it would make us more productive Save us time. In fact, this is probably what they envisioned, you know, back in the 30s when they were thinking we'd be working 10 to 15 hours a week. Technology will solve all our problems. Reminds me of the Jetsons. Exactly. Except more frantic. (laughs) They also said that we're more ambitious and have more visibility into the fruits of affluence than ever before, propelling us into a never-ending quest for more. Yeah, I found this one really interesting because all you have to do is think about Facebook, Right. Right where you see everybody bragging on the best things in their lives. They're never really showing you the undercarriage. Sure. But it's always the shiny new outside of whatever it is in their life that they like. And you get a little bit envious or jealous and it does make you more ambitious. Well, let's be honest. Have you ever left Facebook feeling better about yourself than when you got on? No. And the research proves that, but we digress. That's for another show. That's for another show. (laughs) Yeah. And so this whole thing is further exacerbated which, by the way, I love saying that word, Uh, (laughs) by the fact that we've come to idolize work ethic. Yes. 
In the post-depression era echo, laziness is the ultimate sin. Yep. But according to Gary Blau, professor of human resources at Temple University's Fox School of Business, there's healthy work ethic and there's hmm. unhealthy work ethic. And according to Blau, we're headed for trouble when we assume that work is inherently virtuous and that conversely, time off is inherently lazy. However, both of these ideas have seeped into our collective outlook on work. Now, I can tell you for most of my career, I always felt guilty if I wasn't working on the weekends and if I wasn't working during my vacation, Yes, I was being lazy. And there's kind of this expectation that if you're really committed to the company, to the enterprise, that you put in those extra hours. You know, 40 hours a week? No. You know, maybe for people in government, but not for people in private enterprise. So that was reason number one about why we stay stuck in burnout culture. Reason number two is that we don't know a better approach, right? right? Exactly. Another reason people feel trapped is that they're simply unaware of other alternatives. This isn't surprising given the extent to which overwork has become a cultural norm. We're too busy existing in a toxic work culture to notice its toxicity. It's like being a fish in the water, right? I was just about to say that. <laughs> this is one of those cases where the telepathy is real. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> so um, that's kind of the whole reason that Michael Hyatt and company exists. Our aim is to help overwhelmed high achievers catch a vision of a different way in which they could both win at work and succeed at life. It's not either or, it's both and. And to resource them with tools like the Full Focus Planner or my Free to Focus course to help make that a reality. And for you... This is not something that you knew earlier in your career. You kind of had to learn it the hard way, right? Yeah, I did, unfortunately. And I would really like to save people a lot of grief by giving them shortcuts, by giving them a vision for how it could be different, and by really articulating a different set of values so they don't get caught up in this cultural norm and end up burned out. Absolutely. We want to make people aware that there is a different way. Yep. And that leads naturally to reason number three. And I've got to be honest here. It's easier to win at work. I mean, this is one of the most difficult ones to hear, but the truth is most of us feel more comfortable at work than we do at home. Hmm. And I think this is why we drag work home. Yep. This is why we, uh, if we get bored, we kind of go back to work because at least there we've got stuff that we can check off, stuff we feel comfortable doing. It's a lot less messy than relationships and trying to do all this stuff, you know, on the weekends and the evenings that involve our families and our health and all the rest works just easier. I think that's really true. It provides a lot more certainty. And when you're at home, yes. the gains and the progress is far are far less measurable, right? So true. Especially raising kids. Oh my goodness. I mean, you don't see the results for like 37 Decades. years. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> okay, moving along. So Sarah Damask of Penn State conducted a study on the daily cortisol levels of over 100 professionals. Surprisingly, the stress hormone spiked when participants were at home not at work. That is fascinating. Wow. So she goes on to say that no matter how urgent something is at work, you are not as attached to the urgency as you would be to, say, a health scare or the death of a loved one because we're emotionally entangled at home in a way that we aren't at work. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Totally makes sense. In addition to relatively less attachment at work, the study also suggests that work is less stressful because it's more defined, which is kind of intuitive. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, work has predictable dragons that you've learned to slay. As Harvard Business Review puts it, quote, for some, work can be a haven, a place to feel confident and in control, end quote. Sometimes home feels like anything but that. I think, you know, this is 
particularly interesting when you think about the difference between men and women in a professional setting. For Traditionally. Yeah, well, just kind of how our culture often thinks yeah. about it. So I think for men, it's often seen that overwork is necessary um, or even something to be praised because it's a way of providing for their family. Yeah, totally. Because you 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 can think to yourself, okay, look, I'm doing this for the family. And then all of a sudden it becomes more noble. And right. when in truth, it's actually an escape. Yeah. Because you're escaping into a realm where you know what you're doing, it's less messy, you get all these rewards, you get praise, you feel the sense of accomplishment, and you can feel like you're morally fulfilling your duty as a husband and a father. Yeah. So I think it's a little different for women, though. Mm -hmm. I think for women, the cultural expectations often imply that you're supposed to be potentially pursuing a professional career like I am, but you're also supposed to be the primary caregiver for your children. So there's enormous guilt that comes when you're working on the weekend or at night, um, which is something I try not to do now, but it's something I think when it's necessary, it's, you know, there's a lot of emotions tied up in it. I'll remember a story from a couple of years ago when Jonah, our youngest son was in kindergarten and his teacher said to me, uh, you know, I haven't seen you for a while. It's so good to see you. And what she meant by that was that Joel had been picking up Jonah in the afternoon because we had flip-flopped. Normally, Joel drops off and I pick up in the afternoon, but because of some conflicts, he'd been doing it. And the other moms were there doing room mom stuff and class parties and volunteering. And I wasn't doing that because I have a professional career. And I remember the guilt that I felt at that. I felt like I was failing at work because at that moment I was, you know, doing school stuff. And I also felt like I was failing as a mom because clearly I wasn't volunteering as much as the other moms. It's clearly a double standard. It is. But I, I will say this though, I think it's gotten better. I think it's gotten you know, better. It, we're certainly not where we need to be. Right. But I can see it in you kids. You know, yes. three of my five daughters are married and two of them have kids and I can see more of an equal sharing definitely. Uh, in the roles. Yes. But there was definitely not that expectation when you guys were growing up in our home. Right. Because uh, in a sense, mom, God bless her, enabled it, right? I mean, right. because she was she was also helping me to justify the reason and saying to you guys, you know, you should be grateful that dad works so hard to provide all this wonderful stuff for us. And and so that was, you know, she was kind of playing into the whole thing. Yeah. Well, I think the challenge now as men and women professionally is for us to recognize that when we're doing that, whether we feel guilty or whether we're trying to escape or whatever emotionally is going on, and instead to lean into the kind of squishy, messy home time of relationships uh, and all the engagement that happens there that's less certain because it's so important. Definitely. So before we continue our conversation about burnout culture, I want to pause for just a minute to talk about a new resource that you've created to help guarantee we grow as leaders. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I'm so excited about this new product. It's called LeaderBox, and it's essentially leadership development that comes in a box. It's a monthly curated reading experience designed to maximize your time, grow your leadership, and accelerate your results as a leader. It delivers personal and professional development to your door, helping you get through two books a month in just 30 minutes a day. That is so important because we're all just so busy. Totally. I mean, we know that reading is vital to our continued growth as leaders, right? But there's so many books out there competing for our attention that it can be challenging just to decide what to read, let alone find the time to read the books and then apply those lessons to our businesses. Gosh, I mean, it can be overwhelming fast. 
Exactly. And that's where Leaderbox comes in. So my team and I have a combined experience, get this, of over 50 years in the book publishing industry. (laughs) I mean, it's a lot. lot. And we're leveraging all that know-how to bring you the most valuable books each month, the ones that are really going to move the needle in your life and business, in a curated subscription-based service. Two books, custom activation guides, and more will arrive on your doorstep each month. And just to say it again, you can get through this in 30 minutes a day, which is crazy. I mean, that's a lot of books to read in a year in 30 minutes a day. And actually, it's only 21 days of the month. We give you the weekends off. Okay, so that happens in the activation guide. So talk a little bit about what is in those. Yeah, so this includes a 21-day reading plan, executive book summaries, action steps, a list of related resources, plus my proprietary book insights framework to help you quickly internalize the key concepts. It's an easy, complete subscription that allows you to automate your growth in just minutes a day. I love this solution because I think it solves a very real need for leaders who are committed to personal growth and professional growth, but they need to achieve it as quickly as possible. I mean, come on, we don't have time to sit around for hours every day like we're professional students, right? Plus, unlike so many subscription services, you're offering the option to cancel at any time. Yeah, that was a that was a big decision for us, but we wanted to take all the risk out so that leaders can get the development tools they need without having to worry about being locked in if it's not right for them. So for those who are interested, where can they find out more? Well, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> you can subscribe now at leaderbox.com and I'll encourage you to do that today so you don't miss the cutoff for the next box. Yeah, that's important because each box is only available for one month and there's no way to get your hands on them after that, right? That's true. So the books in the activation guide this month are great and I don't want you to miss out. So subscribe now. Great. I hope all of you will go check it out. Now let's dive back into our conversation about burnout culture. Okay. So we've talked about the cost. We've talked about the cause. And now it's time, finally, Finally. to talk about the cure. Yeah. The costs of burnout culture are so devastating and the causes are so deeply ingrained that it's easy to assume that the cure must be similarly highly complex, right? Right. Thankfully, that is not the case. It's very simple. Work less and rejuvenate more. Yeah. Easy to say, right? Yeah. But harder to learn and harder to practice. Yes. So I don't know how many years ago it was, maybe 10 years ago, I read a book called The Power of Full Engagement by Tony Schwartz and Jim Lohr. And these guys coach high-performance athletes. And one of the things they found about these athletes was that they really focused on energy management and they did it by observing a rhythm between really hard work and then a lot of rest. Hmm. And so, as it turns out in the Olympic world or in the uh, athletic performance world, that the higher your performance, the more you have to rejuvenate in order to sustain that level of performance. We just can't go, 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 go. Right. We've got to have rejuvenation. And that's what we're going to talk about. Yeah. To that end. So, we have something really exciting. A five-ingredient recipe. Don't you love it when we have recipes? I love recipes. For self-rejuvenation to help you unplug, recharge, and perform better than ever. So, ingredient number one is rest. The thing about rest is it's built into our bodies, right? Right. We are made to shut down for a third of our day. A third of the day. That's a lot. That's a lot. Absolutely. And it'll tell us something. It might tell us, it might be giving us clues. And if we cheat ourselves out of this innate need that we have, this off switch that's built into our bodies, we are signing up for burnout. 
Yep. And I think there's at least three times when we need to prioritize rest. Obviously, daily, as you pointed out, right. through adequate sleep and even naps. Now, yes. as you know, I'm a long time napper. I've napped my entire career. You almost have like a PhD in napping. I do. And I can fall asleep and people can't believe this, but I can fall asleep in like 60 seconds or less. Yep. But I've had a lot of practice and I do it daily, right? So daily, so through adequate sleep and naps, weekly by taking a day off like a Sabbath, and then annually with vacations and maybe even a month-long sabbatical. Now, that's something that I didn't think was possible, certainly for most of my career. But a lot of the issue there is that we need to think, what would it take to make it possible? So at any rate, we've already discussed at length the consequences of cheating sleep, so I won't Uh, dwell much on daily rest here, but suffice it to say that adequate sleep and napping lead to better health, greater focus, and improved performance. That's what the science says. Yep. And then a weekly Sabbath does this to a greater extent. It allows us to kind of push the pause button from all our doing and just recharge to actually, you know, be with the people that we love the most, get even more rest, play, all the rest. As Rabbi Abraham Heschel puts it, Six days a week, we wrestle with the world, wringing profit from the earth. On the Sabbath, we especially care for the seed of eternity planted in the soul. The world has our hands, but our soul belongs to someone else. Hmm, That's really a beautiful quote. Isn't that beautiful? And to be clear, we're not talking about only taking one day off. The context of this is religious, uh, this quote, but we're talking about Saturday and Sunday for most people. Right. Yeah. Um, You know, what I love about the idea of Sabbath, though, is that there is humility that's baked into it. We can stop for a whole day or two days, is what we're really recommending, and the world's going to keep turning, right? Yeah, it's almost an act of faith. It is an act of faith. I don't think it's almost. I think it absolutely is an act of yeah. faith. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 by saying, I'm going to start with rest, or I'm going to end with rest. Regardless, I can afford to take this time off because I have an abundance mentality. Yeah. You know, that God's going to provide for me if I work six days or five days or whatever, but I don't have to work seven days. Yeah. It's not all up to me. I think it's a, a direct confrontation to our mentality of self-reliance. From a Christian perspective, we believe that ultimately the results are in the hands of God and not in our own hands. And it just is a good check to us getting out of control on that kind of self-reliance thing. It's a totally good reminder. A monthly sabbatical compounds both the humility and the benefits. Yeah. So this is an idea I want to just camp on for just a minute, because I think for most people, they've never contemplated whether this is possible. And you might be like my nutritionist, who when I told her that I was going away for a month, said to me, well, I could never do that. And I said, whoa, let's stop. And I like what Tony Robbins says, if you ever say to yourself, I can't do that, then you must. (laughs) And so um, I said to her, what what would have to be true for you to be able to take a month off? Mm -hmm. And it kind of reframed it. And then she started thinking, she said, well, I guess I would have to let my clients know in advance that I was going to be gone that month. I said, okay, good, check. What's the next thing that would have to be true? She said, well, I'd have to work out the cash flow implications because obviously I'd be missing the cash intake for a solid month. And I said, do you think that's possible? She said, well, I think with enough planning, yeah. So I saw her about three months later and she told me, she said, I booked a two-week vacation (laughs) to Italy. Now she said, I know it's baby steps. It's not a full month, but I'm getting started. And she had a marvelous time. And she recently told me that she booked a sabbatical for three weeks this next time. And she wants to work up to a month. So it's possible. We have to think about it. But some amazing things happen when you take a month off. 
And we've even instituted that in our company as an employee benefit. So once our employees have been here for three years, on that third year, they get to take 30 days off. No guilt, no work. We don't expect them to check in. We don't want them to check in. In fact, we penalize them if they check in. (laughs) We want them to take that time off so they can really rejuvenate. And part of that's because we see the benefit in our results and their creativity when they return. And you've certainly experienced that when you've taken sabbaticals. Oh, totally. I mean, you come back... Uh, with a complete, I don't know, makeover of your mind and your body and your spirit. And I'm so excited to get back to work. And you have a thousand new ideas. In fact, our team, I think, secretly sort of braces themselves when you come back from sabbatical, (laughs) (laughs) wondering what big fun changes are ahead. Yeah, I I think that used to be true initially when I was doing it, because I would allow myself to think of new ideas. But I don't really do that anymore, because I'm not thinking about work while I'm gone. And I just intentionally push them out of mind. And I think if it's a good enough idea, it'll come back to me later. What's amazing about it is, though, even though you're not thinking about work, your brain is at rest yes. from the part of your brain that is being used in work. And so when you come back, you're you're just like in the peak state of performance. And the ideas that come from that are incredible breakthroughs usually. There. I mean, it's like, you know, it's why we have the best ideas in the shower. When we're totally relaxed. Yep. Same thing is true here. Absolutely. Okay. So ingredient number two for this recipe for rejuvenation is reflection. We live in a busy and noisy world that will suck the life out of us if we let it. Totally. This is why it's essential that we intentionally pull away to a quiet place, pause and reflect. So for me, the way that's best done is a daily quiet time. So my day always starts with a basic same morning routine where I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to journal. I'm going to meditate. And all of that gives me a time to kind of collect my thoughts and to reflect on what matters most in a kind of a disciplined, regular way that um, that helps me make sure that life just isn't slipping past me and I'm not asking myself the question, where am I going? Where is all this leading? And I have an opportunity to course correct. I love that. So many people have been inspired by your morning routine and how you think about that. And it's something that I have uh, in the last couple of years started to incorporate myself. I initially found it really challenging, though, because I have young children who wake up early. Uh, You know, there's so many things to keep up with with kids. And I found that if I would lower the bar to a very small bar to to try to get over, that this is actually possible no matter what season of life you're in. So your quiet time now and this morning routine that you do lasts for a long time because you just kind of have the luxury of that in this season. I don't, and mine is getting longer as my kids get older, but I found that even five or 10 minutes of meditation or five or 10 minutes of reading something spiritual, whatever it may be, just to be alone. You know, I can usually get up that much earlier than my kids, even though they wake up early. And that has been transformational for me. So I think it's important to remember that this is applicable no matter what season of life you're in. That's right. And we're all in different seasons and we need to give ourselves the grace to do what we can. Absolutely. Okay, so ingredient number three in this recipe for rejuvenation is relationships. Arguably, this is the most important one. You and I are made to live in relationship with others, but in a world of social media and kind of fake connections, we have to really be intentional about building time for these relationships. Otherwise, we think that Facebook is the real thing and it's not. We need quality in-person connections. Yep, face-to-face, absolutely. The personal payoff is huge to this. The right relationship can open up a world of learning, encouragement, accountability, and connection for us. Yes. Okay, so ingredient number four is refreshment. And here I'm talking about food and drink. I'm going to be honest. This is kind of almost my favorite one. I know. It's one of my favorites Except for the naps. I really like the naps too. (laughs) So the bottom line is that in order to be productive, to feel energetic, to be focused, we need adequate fuel. 
It's that simple. Specifically, you need to keep your blood sugar regulated. And that's really what this is about. When it spikes and drops, you lose energy. This has a biochemical impact on your brain. I mean, brain fog, right? It's a real thing. You'll experience difficulty with focus and other cognitive activities. Now, people often say they don't have time to stop and eat. I've said that to myself in the past. You know, like I'm going to work through lunch or I'm going to work through dinner or I'm not going to eat breakfast. It just takes too much time. That's stupid. It's like saying you don't have time to stop and get gas for your car. In addition to how often you eat, it's also about what you eat. So you've got to pay attention to eat foods that are actually going to contribute to your productivity and be good, clean fuel and not stuff that's going to, you know, bog you down and mess with your blood sugar and cause you to be more fatigued after you eat than before you ate. Okay. I have to be honest about something here. Okay. When I saw the first point of this and it was food and drink. I thought we were talking about some kind of like Italian fantasy of like possibles <laughs> <laughs> and wine. <laughs> and then you started talking about healthy food and blood sugar and my fantasy just slipped away. <laughs> okay. I don't think that's what you were talking about. <laughs> okay. But I think, I think that has its place too. Yeah, right? I think so too. Yeah. And truly for me, like that, that fantasy, while I'm not Italian, unfortunately, I like to think of myself as being grandfathered in. But, you know, on the weekends, that for me is a huge source of refreshment. One of my favorite things to do on the weekends is to be in the kitchen cooking, usually by myself, sometimes with Joel or one of my kids in there. Uh, but I love that. I love to make a big meal for my family. I love to connect and have conversation over a great meal. And I think both sides of this are super important. On the one hand, food is about refreshing from a physiological standpoint. Right. And we have to think about just kind of the, you know, the technical side of that so that we're nourishing our body. But then we need to nourish our soul also through food and drink as well. You know, that that kind of connection around the table is imperative for the health of our soul and the well-being of our families. Yeah, it really is. And, and you don't have to wait till the weekend even. I mean, one of the best ways to connect is to have dinner together. <gasps> There's a new idea. Right. You know, actually get your family together and have dinner. And, you know, I know so many families that almost like, you know, just stop and refuel and everybody's eating in front of the TV. I mean, this happened to us in the past, eating in front of the TV, not really interacting with one another. Everybody's on their devices. But to use these meal times as a time not only to feed your bodies, right, but to feed your souls and to give you an opportunity to, to really connect. Totally agree. All right. Ingredient number five is recreation. So there's a difference between amusement, like entertainment, and recreation. The former leaves us tired, more tired, in fact, than when we started. Even like a trip to Disney World, you can come back more exhausted than when you left, right? Right. Personally, when I think about going to Disneyland or Disney World, I feel tired just thinking about <laughs> taking my kids there. Yet the latter refreshes us and grounds us. So Arthur Bors describes these activities as focal practices and I'll let my friend, Father Kenny Benj, explain these to you. Let me give you a, a definition of a focal thing, a focal practice. Uh, this comes directly from an interview with Albert Borgman. Uh, he says a focal thing is something that has a commanding presence. In other words, it doesn't yield uh, to our engagement with it. When we engage with it, it affects us in, our, in a, an embodied sort of way, and it connects us and engages us with other people. So focal things and the kind of engagements that they foster have a power to center our lives and arrange other things around this center in an orderly way because it helps us know what's important and what's not. A focal practice results from committed engagement with the focal thing. And so let me you know, that's a very abstract definition. Let me give you an example. When you prepare a meal, 
and you involve other people with it, uh, everyone participates. And this was obviously the way that meal preparation, it wasn't even an option in earlier days, but meal preparation involved everybody else. Uh, firewood had to be cut. Uh, the meal had to be cooked. Uh, and then when people sat down and had the meal, they were engaged with each other in a bodily way. One of the things that people notice these days and more and more dining room tables are actually disappearing from people's homes because less and less people actually just sit down and share meals together as a family. Um, one of the helpful things in terms of the devices is to ask yourself a couple of diagnostic questions. Uh, where are you not because of your engagement with technological devices? Um, to help you understand it a little bit more, technology assists us because it helps us transcend time and space. Another way of saying is that, that technology shrinks our world and speeds it up. A good diagnostic question is, when is that helpful for you? And when is it harmful or violent to us as creatures? And focal practices help us slow down create space for ourselves, uh, so that we can re-engage as whole people with certain parts of life that are holistic. As we discussed in our show opening, Winston Churchill provides a powerful example of the value of reflection. Per Churchill, for recreation to be effective, it must be different from what you do professionally. You have to do things that don't mirror what you do at work. So yeah, that's why we advise no business on the weekends, not even reading business books, which is something I love to do at any other time. But it's time to light up the other parts of our brain. Now, as Churchill puts it, change is the master key. A man could wear out a particular part of his mind by continually using it and tiring it, just in the same way he can wear out the elbows of his coat. There is, however, this difference between the living cells of the brain and inanimate articles. The tired parts of the mind can be rested and strengthened, not merely by rest, but by using the other parts. It's not enough merely to switch off the lights which play upon the main and ordinary field of interest. A new field of interest must be illuminated. That whole thing was the quote. He went on to say, it's no use inviting the businessman who has been working or worrying about serious things for six days to work or worry about trifling things at the weekend. In other words, for recreation to work, we got to switch it up. Absolutely. This is why you advocate, and we talk about a lot, the need to develop hobbies, yeah. interests, read books that are kind of outside of our normal purview to stimulate different parts of our brain, just like Churchill is saying here. Yeah. So we just got back from vacation last week at the time we we're recording this, and I took up painting. I've never painted before, but uh, mom is a painter, and she does a great job at it. Mm -hmm. But um, I decided this was something I wanted to learn because I just wanted to give creative expression to something. And I loved it. I think this is going to be a lifelong hobby for me. But it employs a completely different part of my brain that I normally use. And gives the rest of your brain a break. That's right. Okay, wow. That was great. So today we've covered three facets of the burnout culture. The cost, the cause, and the cure. If you've enjoyed today's episode, you can get the show notes and a full transcript online at lead2.win. As we come in for a landing, I'd like to remind you that even though the causes may be vast and the costs devastating, the cure for burnout culture is available to you starting today. Whether you paint like Churchill, or now my dad, or cook like I do on the weekends, or maybe do something else this weekend to rest, you can take action now to move your life and our culture away from the overwork addiction. Dad, do you have any final thoughts today? 
Yeah. I mean, your last point you made is really apropos, and that is that it really is in our hands. Yes. You know, sometimes we think that burnout is something that happens to us, like we're the victim, but we have a lot of agency. And we're going to be talking a lot about that in these podcasts, that we do have more control than we think. We don't have to burn out and we don't have to suffer uh, from overwork and all of this. These are little choices that we make and we're kind of accomplices in our own demise. And so we've got to take the control back and we've got to be intentional. Otherwise, we are going to drift to burnout. So it's entirely possible to live a different kind of life. We just got to take action. I love that. Okay, before we close, I want to remind you about Leaderbox. It's automated personal development in a box. Check it out at leaderbox.com. Thanks again for joining us on Lead to Win. If you like the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. And also please leave a review of the show wherever you listen to podcasts. This program is copyrighted by Michael Hyatt and Company, all rights reserved. Our producer is Nick Jaworski. Our writers are Joe Miller, Mandy Raviccio, and Jeremy Lott. Our recording engineer is Matt Price. Our production assistants are Mike Burns and Alicia Curry. And our intern is Winston. We invite you to join us for our next episode, where we'll be discussing the anatomy of a tough talk, so you can win with even the most difficult conversations. Until then, lead to win. and Alicia Curry. And our intern is Winston. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) If you could see Winston, that would be even funnier. I feel like we just went into like... There's more. I'll I'll just... Okay. (laughs) I'll just say... It it felt better in my mind. It sounded better in my mind than it did in reality. Excellent.